So, Renato, does the cell site location data that Trump's team provided in Fulton County prove that the prosecutors there were lying about when their relationship started? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, I thought, you know, this motion um, and all of the back and forth about historical cell site information in the Fulton County case was an interesting thing for us to talk about. Because it seems like most people really don't know much about it. No. And it's both interesting from sort of a conceptual Fourth Amendment point of view um, and how it relates, you know, to this case, if it does at all. Uh, and I think in what you can learn from it, which I know you know a lot about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of us listening here are going to be like, oh, my God, this again. Why is this going down this rabbit hole? It ultimately matters because the judge is taking this seriously. I think the judge is concerned that maybe uh, there's been an attempt to deceive him. Uh, and yes, that would be a very foolish move by the prosecutors in this case if they made that uh, decision. But nonetheless, um, the information being relied upon is information that is used in thousands of criminal cases every year across this country. I was using it many years ago. Uh, when I was a younger junior federal prosecutor and it was a pioneering uh, technique back then, but it is now uh, something that is used um, frequently by prosecutors across the country. Yeah, sure. So why don't we, why don't you explain what it is and what the kind of data or what this kind of data tells us? Like, what is the information that it provides investigators? Sure. Well, let's put it as a starting point. Everyone, I think, understands that their cell phone does uh, help people locate them, right? A lot of people have used something like Find My iPhone or the Android equivalent of that uh, to find their their iPhone or maybe to keep track of their uh, kids and their phones or things like that, family members, that sort of thing. That sort of location information that's transmitted from your phone is real-time GPS information that can determine your location with pinpoint accuracy uh, in real time. That sort of information is available to law enforcement, but it has to be done on an, uh, on an ongoing basis, a future basis. So in other words, I used to, for example, investigate kidnappings in progress in, the, in, you know, in my portion of the country, in the Northern District of Illinois. I would have to rush to a judge, get a court order, or a search warrant. Um, this is before the key case that I know we'll end up talking about here at Carpenter. I would get a search warrant and I would get the phone company to provide real-time location information on a phone, kind of like find my iPhone or something, but for the bad guy's phone in real time. I We could literally within like 10 meters locate uh, the person who had kidnapped someone. This is different. The information that was provided in Fulton County is not that way, but it's historical information, which makes it very valuable because a lot of times it, when you're trying to investigate a crime, you don't find out that, about the crime until after it occurred. So if you're trying to find out, for example, whether a particular individual was the one robbing a bank at a particular time, 
you can actually issue, um, in this case, it was a subpoena. We'll talk more about the legal standard later, but you can get records from the phone company that show for each phone call made by the phone, what cell tower that phone connected to at the beginning of the call, as well as the orientation um, in which it, it hit the tower. In other words, every cell tower typically has uh, like three sectors, essentially. Let's just say A, B, and C, or you know, might be Northwest, Southeast, that sort of thing. And essentially, you can almost pinpoint a phone uh, within a certain direct, like it'll give you a directional element. So you could say this slice, it's not just, you know, you can pinpoint, let's say that this phone was, was, was within two miles of the tower, but you might be able to pinpoint that this, this phone was actually southeast of the tower or northwest. What that does is establish the phone in a particular area at a particular time. I was going to say what it can do is help triangulate, right? Like it can give, if, if you have different towers, you know the direction, then there's going to be some overlapping areas that they that all converge. And I, I guess it really depends on the saturation of t cell phones in that particular area that's going to give you the the radius that you can actually triangulate. Yeah, it's a smart point. Uh, the saturation of the cell towers matters. If you're in the middle of uh, a rural area, there may only be one cell tower, um, but in a very densely packed urban area, there are more. It also depends on how how often you are making calls. Um, and so, but it, it's best, you know, it can really be very probative in certain circumstances. I, I investigated a, a, a crime family that was traveling around the country committing crimes and their phone always seemed to be in the town or, you know, where the crime was being committed. That's highly probative. But for example, if you're trying to determine, you know, what somebody was doing in a, you know, in a, in Manhattan, there may be so many cell towers and it really may not tell you a whole heck of a lot. So just so that our listeners understand why this was brought up and what the purported relevance is. Once again, we're back to the timeline of Fonnie Willis's relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade. And the assertions made by both Wade and Willis is that their relationship started in 2022 after she had hired him. So in other words, this is trying to undercut any accusation that they had a prior relationship and she hired him knowing that somehow, you know, that he was going to benefit financially and then she would benefit or something like that. Anyway, the point is that the timeline matters in terms of the assertions and representations they made to the court. And what Trump's lawyers are trying to show with this cell site location data is, look, there were 12,000, I, I, you could, you probably have the numbers that were in the filing. I mean, there were thousands of uh, I guess, cell phone pings in the vicinity of Fonnie Willis's house by Nathan Wade's cell phone. Um, and then I think they also mentioned that there were thousands of interactions between their devices as well. Um, and this this all was taking place in 2021. This is going to, sh this shows, according to Trump's lawyers, that they their relationship predated the time that he was hired which not only they say goes to their claim that there's, you know, a conflict of interest, but also now, if that were true, that they lied to the court. And so that's why 
what what this particular data shows exactly and whether the judge is going to consider it becomes important. Yeah, that's a really important point. And this data, by the way, is used in court cases across the country, not just the historical cell site information, but as you point out, um, Ash, and what we call the call detail records. And I used to use that as a prosecutor as well. It's like, why are these individuals contacting each other hundreds of times a day? It's like, well, my contention is that they were conducting some big time drug deal. Their contention is that they just were that enthusiastic about the Chicago Cubs or whatever they want were discussing, uh, you know, getting pizza together or something that they thought that they claimed that they were discussing so urgently. So a lot uh, this is similar. I mean, it's not there's nothing criminal about being in an adult uh, relationship between consenting adults. But nonetheless, um, here they made a representation to the court and the attorneys are like, hey, these people are contacting each other a heck of a lot for people who supposedly aren't in a relationship. And this guy seems like he's in the location, the general location of her residence, you know, and this goes to show it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not the standard, but it goes to show that maybe he's not telling the truth and she's not telling the truth of the court. And I think it was a nine mile radius <laughs> of her house. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't just the volume of connections made by his phone to that vicinity and the interactions between their devices, but also that the time at which these were taking place were very, very late at night or very, very early in the morning. Um, in other words, it's not just, you know, during happy hour, you know, like after work or something right. like that. So they're trying to paint a picture here. And before we get into what you think, you know, this goes like how or how you think this plays out, it might be worth talking about what Bonnie Wills' response was to this, uh, which is that the judge should not admit this information into evidence for this hearing and consider it because, uh, A, she said that it's not probative, and you can talk about that, Renato, but she made this interesting argument where she challenged the legality by which the Trump team got those records, and this is because that law enforcement is not able to get this kind of information without getting a search warrant from a court. And if there's just a really interesting history, this is a really cool and, you know, I teach this case, Carpenter versus United States from 2012, because under existing Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, what your Fourth Amendment rights are really based on this idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy over the information being sought. And as Renato just explained, for things like the inter the number of interactions between, you know, two cell phones for their texts, um, you know, that is different than knowing the content of what was actually being said. And so the court has generally looked at what is the kind of information that's being sought and also have you voluntarily essentially given this over to a third party, understanding that somebody else has this information? So, you know, when you dial a phone number, the phone company knows the numbers that you're dialing. Um, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy over the numbers that you dial. 
And I think the idea leading up to Carpenter was you also know that when you're using your cell phone that the cell phone towers are gathering this information, that your cell phone company is getting this information. And I think there's also this underlying uh, assumption in history that you don't really have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your physical movements in public. Um, you know, as an FBI agent, I could follow somebody around all day and that was fine. And what was really interesting about this case is they said, well, it's true that you might know that you're getting this information over, um, but because modern technology has gotten to a point where it can literally follow you anywhere, uh, you know, it it is an invasion of privacy for the government to be able to get this information without a warrant because it's getting into some of the most intimate parts of your life. Like they can essentially follow you into um not just public spaces, but private spaces. They can see like where you're you're going. And also I think what was really interesting about this case was it it talks about kind of the changing balance of power between law enforcement and the individual as a result of technology that because of the amount of data that can be gathered, as Renato just said, you can go back in history and like really create a whole big picture of someone's day-to-day life really um and and what they've been doing and where they've been and all that and so they they kept that they weirdly kept the reasonable expectation of privacy standard and this whole third party you're handing it over jurisprudence in place they didn't overturn anything but they kind of created this whole new category for cell site location information um and that's why Fannie willis said well how did Trump get this? Because law enforcement, I mean, she's a prosecutor. She, she's probably got, tried to get, had to get this too. Law enforcement would need a warrant. But of course, Trump is not acting as the government here. So I'm curious what you think. I mean, could his lawyers just get this with a subpoena? The short answer is yes. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting thing, by the way. I think you explained it very well, Asha. You know, I was involved in a lot of debates within DOJ in 2009 to 2011, when I was prosecutor there, this is before Carpenter, about what we're going to do with this information, because technically speaking, you didn't need a warrant at that time for this. And we would just issue for call detail records. In other words, the phone contacts between phones, we would just, just send a subpoena. So, you know, what about historical cell site information? And there are a lot of people, very senior smart people within the Justice Department who are like, hey, people are giving this to AT&T. We're not asking individuals for their information. We're asking AT&T or Verizon or Sprint for this information. What, you know, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy for Sprint's uh, records on somebody else. Um, and, the you know, so I, I think, you know, it's uh, it's the sort of thing that really is a creature of, as you point out, the unique way in which government's surveillance of the individual has increased, right? And, you know, in the past, you'd have to have the expense of having FBI agents follow somebody around. Now, cheaply, you can follow everybody. And I think the government, the, the court was concerned about that. So, you know, yes, in the government context, you require, it requires a warrant, but a private party, they could subpoena this information. They do subpoena this sort of information. 
Um, it is used, I think, sometimes maybe in divorce proceedings and things like that. Um, here, it's it was being used for this purpose. I don't re- I don't think that um, her argument's very good here, and I think Trump's Trump's attorneys are going to win on this point. Now, you, I think a lot of people, listeners at home, are like, "Oh my God, why does this even matter? Why are we talking about somebody's personal uh, relationship?" And I think that's a fair point, but the judge seems to care. I think the 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 path of the Georgia case is going to be determined by how the judge perceives this, because if the judge thinks that Willis and uh, Wade are lying to him, he may just decide that they have to recuse themselves, and then a new a new prosecutor is not as enthusiastic about this matter may take it over. Yes. So what about... I, I hear what you're saying is the, the her legal argument that, you know, this was illegally obtained is probably unavailing if, if it was totally fine for his lawyers to get it with a subpoena. But what do you think about what it actually shows? I mean, I, it seems relevant, but at what point would you look at this and the representations that are being made and conclude that the nature of their relationship, A, began in 2021 and i mean how would you even determine the nature of that relationship i mean you don't know that they're in each other's presence maybe they're friends i mean she did i don't think there was any dispute that they knew each other before this or that they were friends right well you also could have an emotional relationship with someone that's not physical so does that count right um right i don't know um you know because Fonnie wallace had a fairly Famous quote about right when relationships end and how that's in the eye of the beholder. Um, it's a good question. I guess I'll think maybe to help our listeners think about this, I'll pose a question to you, Asha. Let's say that your boyfriend, um, you were, were suspected that your boyfriend had a relationship with somebody else and you got this data and it showed that he was speaking hundreds of times or not speaking. His phone was in contact with her phone hundreds of times late at night. And his phone was within, you know, six miles, eight miles of her residence, which was not at his, you know, not right where his was. There was some distance involved in the evenings. What would you conclude? Would you think that that was evident? Would you disregard that evidence Uh, or would you think it was probative? Well, I'd be pissed, but (laughs) there you go. (laughs) But here's what I would say. I mean, I think you would need to look at what like is there any reason for them to be in this frequent contact right so we we know they know each other um i mean that's a lot of time one of the things that funny willis notes in her filing in all caps which was a little weird was that this was right around the time that was it the grocery store mass shooting took place at that time okay I, I, I don't remember. I believe, I believe that's, but she, she references a, a mass shooting or a major shooting that was like, I guess, getting national attention. You know, um, he's a prosecutor. You know, if, if there's some, look, I, I text you when I have a legal question or if I want to kind of talk something through. True. My wife's not concerned. But Your yes, wife is not we don't concerned. talk hundreds of times. We don't yes. talk hundreds of thousands of times. No. But <laughs> my point is, you know, we have a working relationship. We have reasons to be in communication with each other. If there was a spike in those communications, say 
you know, a big case comes down about Trump or something like that. I mean, you know, you might see a flurry of interactions. And I don't know if I lived in Chicago, maybe I'd be or maybe I'd happen to be kind of around your vicinity. I don't know. I'm just yeah, I'm not defending. Yeah. I'm just giving the other side of the argument here. Like, in other words, yeah. I, how much does the, the judge look at this? Is it really the triangulation, the nine mile radius? Is it the frequency of the contacts without knowing the content and without really, as you said, knowing, defining very clearly what what does the beginning of a relationship mean? You know, I, I think just looking at the motion and just seeing the dispute between the sides. The information clearly comes in. I mean, I agree there may be an alternative explanation to it, but I don't see how the data doesn't come in to evidence. So that, that I think is an easy call. There is this, there is this issue where the defense, the defense wants to put up Trump's team, wants to put up a person to explain this data. And they say it's not an expert. Um, and this is also a common battle in trials is, is this really an expert or is this a summary witness? In other words, you know, if I'm just putting up a bunch of chart, like let's say I have my assistant create a bunch of charts out of data, you know, just do some basic arithmetic. And I decide that like we're putting those you know, charts into evidence and she's going to walk you through the math. That's not really expert testimony. She's just sort of summarizing things. There's a difference between that and somebody's providing expertise. I will tell you, I used to train FBI agents to be experts in this space. We, our view, the Justice Department view at that time, back in that time period I told you pre, pre Carpenter was this had to be expert testimony because they were offering an opinion about what this meant about the radius of a tower and yada, yada, yada. I don't, I do, could see the judge very carefully cabining that piece of this, like what, because that is also part of the motion. Here is whether or not that witness is excluded. But I don't know how much that matters um, at the end of the day. And I do think that the, how probative it is depends on the alternative explanation provided. You know, we got about the cash issue, which was also raising some eyebrows. This explanation from her dad and her about carrying a lot of cash and why this is um, totally uh, makes sense in their in their experience. I don't know. I mean, maybe this guy had a lot of wisdom that he was providing or whatever, but it's definitely, she's got some explaining to do, so to speak. Yeah. And I, you know, I just always go back to what a poor, poor, you know, idea this was <laughs> um, on a, a long number of different dimensions, because wouldn't you expect that this would come out in some way and whether or not the interpretation is accurate as we've talked about many times before perception is can be as important as reality uh when it comes to people believing in the impartial administration of justice and i think in that regard you know i've said it before trump is an information warrior he has he's won just by making this now the story and, I agree with that. And not just making it a story, but making it a actual material issue that could impact the outcome of the case. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I will say that I view this issue about the timing of the relationship at an even other level 
than the relationship itself. In other words, you know, they made a bad decision by having a relationship during this time period. But even if, once you've made that decision, okay, and you know you had the relationship, when you know that the defense is looking into this and investigating the issue, if they did in fact, and we don't have an, it hasn't been established, but if they did in fact mislead a lie to the court uh, about the starting time of that relationship, that is really effing dumb. Like that is about as dumb as it gets. So I really hope for their sake that they did not do that because that is just beyond unforced error. Like that is just pure stupidity. So Asha, we had a lot of other topics to discuss this week and trying to decide between a couple of them was hard. So I guess we have prosecution potpourri. Smells like justice. There you go. It smells like justice indeed. So I'll I'll start with a, one that I think is interesting. We do have the list, the notice that has been filed in the court um, just yesterday in the Manhattan DA's case from Trump's team. They've filed their notice of his motions in limine. Motions in limine are the list of motion are the motions that are filed in advance of trial. And essentially, it's asking the court to rule on issues in advance, like evidentiary issues, so that the, the trial can be more efficient and orderly. So those issues don't come up or pop up in the middle of the trial. And we don't know what the motions are yet. We haven't. We don't know the the um, specifics of the motions, but they have explained what those motions are. So uh, I, my favorite one is number one: Michael Cohen perjury. Uh, the people, uh, this is the prosecution, should be precluded from subverting additional per- perjury by Michael Cohen. I feel like that goes right to the point you were just making about disinformation, right? Isn't that just purely about creating a story about Michael Cohen? 100%. Yeah. You can't know what he's going to say, what Cohen's going to say. Their claim is that it's untruthful, but this is just, I think, a way of packaging that up. I, I think right. the most interesting one, though, is one in which they essentially argue that the prosecution, and I'm going to quote from their their filing, should be precluded from arguing that President Trump sought to improperly influence, they put that in quotes, the 2016 election was, they say it was nothing untoward or irregular and certainly nothing criminal about his winning candidacy supported by tens of millions of Americans. So essentially what their argument is here, this is a common issue in criminal trials, is the prosecution is just uh, as to this very narrow issue. So the government should not be able to argue about all of these bad things that are kind of around it. In other words, you've just charged me or my client with this very narrow transaction and a narrow date. You can't talk about his, you know, massive scheme. You can't talk about all the impacts on it. You can't try to talk about all these things around it. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to draw a circle around what happened in this particular case with the hush money payments and trying to say that that's all the government could talk about. Well, and then that basically means that the government wouldn't be able to present their theory of the case because what they want to do is explain the motive, right? That all of these reimbursements to Michael Cohen were concealed because they did not want it to become known that she was being silenced for her story in advance of the election. And I am I would guess that Bragg is also going to say that this is exactly why Trump didn't just pay her back 
directly. So um, it seems like that's going to be a losing battle to not allow the government to present the motive that Trump would have to create. I mean, obviously, he did create this very complex <laughs> arrangement for no reason. Uh, but I think to your point earlier about the perjury thing, it tells me that they're very concerned about the narrative that's going to come out in the court of public opinion, I think, as much as the court of law in terms of the reporting. Because, of course, the last thing you want going into an election is a story that resurfaces how Trump tried to subvert the election in 2016. And I think we've noted that that is really that's the way that Bragg makes this case relevant to right now, too. That's right. I, and I think that's the important point. I was just going to say that myself. Actually, I think you and I are thinking alike. Is that, you know, one issue that I think both of us have had at times with this Manhattan DA case is kind of like old news, right? He's like charging something that happened pre-2016 election. And it's really hard to explain to a jury, like, what are we doing here? Like, why why are we here? What is? Why does this matter? That's an important part of every prosecution. Prosecution has to convince the jury, like, why does this matter? Sometimes it's obvious, like someone was murdered, but other times it's not. And this is one of those times. And I think Bragg and his team are really planning, I think, to push hard on the idea that they this subverted our electoral system. And I think the defense is wisely shoot, putting a shot across the bow. And I almost, I'm going to say, Asha, that I'm sure they hope they win this. I don't think they expect to win, but I actually think what they're doing is putting a marker down or kind of putting this issue on the judge's radar. What I think they're hoping is even if they lose, the judge is going to be mindful of this and watch what the prosecution says. And similarly, Bragg's team is going to be very thoughtful and careful, more thoughtful and careful than they otherwise would have been about how they argue this issue. Because they're essentially setting up an issue about it on appeal or so forth, where they say Trump was essentially being put, you know, put on trial for something he wasn't charged with, something beyond what he was actually charged with. And that's why the jury convicted, not because of the evidence in the case. Doesn't that happen a lot, though? It does happen. And like, I mean, if, I, if I'm if I'm prosecuting somebody for murder, like they murder their wife and she found out that he was falsifying, you know, whatever their taxes and, and he had to kill her because she was going to talk, you know, even if the person hasn't been charged for the other illegal behavior that he was trying to conceal by killing the spouse, I assume that you'd be able to bring that in as the motive. Yeah, you have. So here's the thing. Yes, I mean, in here, so for motive, yes. Secondly, you know, you certainly in this case, because the other crime matters here, right? In other words, this is, these were falsification, falsification of business records, and it's a felony if it's done for, to promote another crime, I believe, or yeah, something along those lines. From, yeah, could yeah, conceal another crime. So that could be part of the element that they have to prove. However, the question is, how do you argue that? in closing and how, what, what arguments is the government making? Like certain arguments by the government are improper. Like, Hey, this guy committed this murder. Okay. That's fine. But then if you're like, you need to keep your neighborhood safe because this guy is involved in some uh, spree of whatever he's dangerous, that's not proper. And I think if they're trying to argue that you need to save our electoral system from Donald Trump, 
because he subverts our electoral system and this is part of it, you know, something along those lines that's problematic. And so I think that the defense is trying to put a shot across the bow so that Bragg's team is arguing the stuff in an artful way. There are clever ways in which you can argue this in a way that hits the elements, but still gets across that message to the jury. And that's really what Bragg's team should be doing if they're smart and savvy prosecutors. Um, and I think the defense is sort of circling like vultures waiting for uh, a time where they maybe step over the line or do this on inartfully. Yes. So next up in prosecution potpourri. Um, is this the like bark, the tree bark part or the cinnamon? Okay, keep going. <laughs> Sorry. For the potpourri. Okay, I said Corey. Yeah, the I, stepdad joke. Okay, okay, move on. Um, All right. No, I know you're. I, I know where you were going with that. Uh, so, I want to talk about Alexander Smirnov, who is uh, the former star witness of James Comer's impeachment inquiry, who turns out to be a conduit of Russian disinformation, and he was charged with lying to the FBI. He is the one who basically made the explosive allegation that Joe Biden received bribes while he was vice president in order to stop a prosecutor in Ukraine from investigating Burisma while his son was on the board. And that his son used the position on the board to basically stop this investigation. It's, it's the same recycled narrative that we've heard since Trump's impeachment uh, you know, over the Zelensky impeachment one. But it's what's extraordinary is that at the very end of the of the indictment, uh, Smirnov not only tries to change his story because the FBI has figured out that it's all a lie. He's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I met with four Russian officials. And, you know, they may have recordings of Hunter Biden in Kiev. And I was I read that and I was like, OK, this is super. That's crazy. Um, and then it turns out in arguing to the court that he should not be released um, pending trial. The government has said that he has. Basically, Russian contacts, and he's acting in, in some way as basically an agent of of Russia. And it's just extraordinary that we have basically had a vector of Russian disinformation injected directly into congressional proceedings. Now, not just any congressional proceedings, an impeachment effort of a sitting U.S. president. I mean, we are just in crazy town right now. And, you know, I'm not rushing to collusions or anything, but Okay, sorry. I, I have been waiting like six years to use that. Um, <laughs> that oh, my good. God. Um, but I think we have to be very wary of how, you know, when you combine that with the withholding of aid from Ukraine, the crazy comments that Trump has been making, you know, I'm I'm just very alarmed at the alignment and almost unabashed promotion of Russia's preferred talking points in our political processes. 
Yeah, I mean, look, this should be embarrassing to the Republican uh, Congress people who are pushing impeachment. Uh, I will note that some of them have scrubbed their websites yes. for a reference to this guy. He was supposedly the star witness. We heard so much on this whistleblower, 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 FBI whistleblower. Turns out the guy is a liar, um, or at least alleged uh, by the government to be, by the F- uh, DOJ to be a liar. Appears to be a liar. Um, but in any event, um, it, you know, it's, it is a sad thing for our country. Um, and it's really a par for the course. Like you, as you point out, this is what Trump was, you know, pressuring, threatening Ukraine to dig up info regarding the group. The Russians ended up serving this up, um, to, uh, uh, you know, to the Republicans in the House. They ran with it. And I guess, is it any wonder that the Republicans in the House are withholding aid from Ukraine and Trump is trying to, uh, you know, uh, undermine NATO and say that we're not going to defend our NATO allies? Just it all uh, it all um, seems to line up in the same direction. And just to put a cherry on top, um, the irony of this all is that the FBI began investigating these claims aggressively because James Comer and Chuck Grassley knew that this reporting existed from way back in the day, which the, which the FBI got back in like 20, you know, um, 2020 didn't find anything there. I have to wonder why that was not pursued more aggressively then to determine whether he was lying about a presidential candidate. But anyway, they quietly closed the case. To me, this is a real scandal under Bill Barr's administration just quietly let this, I guess this informant stayed on the books and just quietly shut it, you know, filed it away. Then Comer and Grassley wanted the, said, why isn't the FBI looking into this? You know, this is another example of the deep state. So the FBI basically hands this over to David Weiss, the special counsel who's investigating all the Hunter Biden stuff. And lo and behold, they did investigate it very aggressively and found out the guy is lying and it got blown open. So be careful what you wish for. And I really think that the big scandal here is that this person was not exposed for being a liar and a conduit of Russian disinformation much earlier by the FBI itself. Yeah, I will say there's a lot of information provided to the FBI that sits in a report on a system somewhere. Uh, And whether it's true or not, who knows? I mean, the FBI gets a lot of information from a lot of people. They're not usually running around trying to determine whether everybody who talks to them is a liar or not, whether their charges are warranted. Um, it's almost like uh, people who submit false tax returns or things like that. There's only a fraction of them who are caught and prosecuted. Um, and here's a case where I think, as you point out, the amount of information and uh, attention put on, you know, regarding this uh, from Republicans, ironically, what led to this guy's prosecution. And speaking, by the way, of um, deceptive people who are, um, you know, aiding uh, Republican disinformation efforts, our friend Kenneth Cheeseborough, Chesborough, whatever his whatever his name is, we haven't talked about him for a while, so we haven't uh, had to discuss his uh, his cheesy name for a period of time. But he apparently it was just revealed uh, this you know, a couple days ago or a day ago had a, a burner Twitter account that he's using 
to I was following a lot of us and attacking our views on democracy and so forth. And basically, um, he lied to Michigan investigators who were investigating the false elector scheme by saying that he wasn't, you know, essentially saying things that the, the opposite of what he was saying in this account, which he was using to promote as a disinformation about the role of electors in our uh, in the electoral efforts uh or the 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 subvert, electoral subversion efforts of Donald Trump during the 2020 election. Now, what was the name of this account? Because it sounded vaguely familiar to me. It was something Badger or something another, right? Wasn't Badger that like Pundit? something Badger? Yeah, Badger Pundit. So supposedly a Wisconsinite, I suppose. I don't know if he's actually from Wisconsin. He had like a little uh, little logo that he had made for it, like BP or something. Well, and he Badger attacked Pundit, you at some like point. He did. In fact, the the tweet uh, I I found out about this because I got a bunch of mentions in Twitter. Uh, apparently, um, people were were going back to see who what tweet he had he had responded to, and the tweet and mentioned in the CNN article was my tweet that he replied to. I was just saying that this is a threat to our democracy. These essentially f- these fake electors, and he responded saying, "No, this is part of the Constitution, and you know this is you know total." And in fact, he. He uh, tagged Randy Garnett as a uh, right wing um, professor trying to, you know, a law professor trying to get support for this idea that, hey, this is totally normal. This is what people do is they try to put up alternate plates of electors, even if they lost the state and the election in the state. It's uh, um, quite bizarre, but it just it goes to show the disinformation element. It really comes, you know, you you mentioned in the last one, Asha, last this last Smirnoff. That's that's a, a nation state. Correct. Russia sponsoring disinformation. But I really think, you know, it's become internalized within the Republican Party. And here's a guy who graduated. Didn't he graduate from like Harvard Law School? Yeah, uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. It's and he sort of wants he wants his own advancement so much that he's willing to lie and try to deceive the public uh, and apparently Michigan state investigators to accomplish that. It's absolutely crazy. It is, it is really insane, and I think, yeah, the, I think when we get to the point where the lawyers are the ones that are doing this stuff, like, it really depresses me. It, it's really something. I mean, there is definitely this uh, notion that lawyers are held to a higher standard, and we're officers of the court, and so forth, and, you know, having lawyers use their skills to try to move forward an effort to subvert our constitution and our democracy. I mean, it's just highly disturbing. True. Once again, the chief stands alone. So before we go, Renato, I just had a fun weekend with my adult friends in Disney World. Wait, you went to Disney World without children? Uh, with no children. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, what's up with that, Asha? That's a little sus. What's going on? So uh, one of my good college friends is was celebrating his 50th birthday. And what he wanted to do for his 50th birthday was go. He wanted to do drinks around the world at Epcot Center. Okay. I did not know this was a thing. Have you ever heard of this? No, because I'm... Over the age of eighteen, so I don't, I don't take trips. So to... drinks around the world is the you go to the what is it called? 
Parade of Nations, the show, the World Showcase okay. in Epcot Center. I don't, have you been to Epcot Center? I've so been to Epcot side, Center years ago, yes. Yeah, so basically there's two different sides. One has like different exhibitions and rides yep. on, you know, kind of uh, different areas. Um, and then the other side is a World Showcase and they have different countries, I think 12 different countries that all go in like a semicircle. And drinks around, and and each country, you know, it has cuisine, it has um, stores. It, they literally only hire people who are nationals of that country to work there. And in, interestingly, as an aside, there's a lawsuit against Disney right now because during COVID, they weren't giving these H-1B visas for people to work there. So they were all, you know, Americans. And then... Once things opened up, they fired all the Americans and hired people from those countries to work there. So now there's a there's a lawsuit against Disney for discriminating on the basis of national origin against Americans, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, um, but among the many things that each country has is, you know, signature beverages from the country. And so drinks around the world is that you start at one end and you have a drink in each country and you work your way around. So I was trying to tease you because it's obviously like that's more I don't know I think Disney World is like a kids thing, but I get what I get I get the appeal of it I get the appeal of it I I, I can't say that I would choose that for my fiftieth birthday if my wife is listening please do not make that my fiftieth birthday uh, thing but uh, I get it so did you actually have fun at at Epcot Center. It was fun. I definitely had to have a drinking strategy because we started at 11 o'clock and I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. So I had a friend who was there with me, um, another college friend, and we decided to share drinks. And sometimes we even shared it with a third person. So, but we always got something that was very like that country, like a either a cocktail that was that country or a beer from that country. You know, so like we started in Canada and it was like a, what's called an Ottawa apple. Okay. And I was thinking Labatt's. Okay. I don't know. All right. No. Lovely drink. But you know, I only had like this much and there was ice in it. So yeah. I was able to to make it through, but I did not actually make it through all 12 countries. I was kind of It's a lot of drinks. 12 drinks? It's, it's a <laughs> lot of drink. Like, I, yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, the pomegranate mimosa in Morocco was nice. Okay. Um. A violet sake in Japan. I mean, there were fun drinks. You just have if you're just having a few sips. And then did you like go on rides and that sort of thing, or no? I did go on rides. So I went on a roller coaster like halfway through the day. This Guardians <laughs> of Galaxy roller coaster, which was kind of very, and it it had like, you know, it has like different G forces and stuff. I don't know. It was crazy. So I was really glad that I had not had too much alcohol by that point so the last yeah i i was at um, uh, a place called cedar point uh, a number of years ago and i the, uh, there's all these roller coasters they're a little much for me and so i'm like okay i'll you know i'll have a couple drinks that's gonna take the edge off i'm gonna enjoy these oh, rides boy. way more oh no that did not go very well oh it went, it went very much the opposite direction so i was kind of curious how that how that yeah. worked out for you yeah, but it was fun. It was it was fun to go and just have like a different focus than when you go with your kids. Um, because honestly, at this point, Disney is really complicated. Like 
you need a freaking PhD in Disney to understand how to work the system so that you don't wait in line for like three hours. That's interesting. See, I I, yeah. I will say the one part of it that is cool to me as an adult is like they have that whole Star Wars area where they like made it like Star Wars, like you're at, you're in it and you're, it's immersive. Like that's super yeah. cool to me uh, yep. as a Star Wars nerd. I like that. Um, I don't know if they have, so- they have something similar for Marvel. I know that, what is it? Um, their competitor has the Harry Potter one, right? Mm-hmm. Rain at Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I mean, a lot of the stuff that, like, the more traditional stuff, like, it's, even when I was in high school, I found that kind of, like, lame, right? Like, Magic Kingdom, like, when you're at a certain point, once you're an adult, like, it's well, hard to get too into it. I think, I think that Disney Imagineers have come up with a lot of cool different things. So there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, virtual reality or or ways in huh. which they have rides that are kind of very immersive. Um, and it's cool. It is cool that they, I, I think that they have, you know, up, updated a lot of the rides to um, using like new technology. So the Guardians of Galaxy roller coaster was actually really, really cool. I can see that. I mean, it's Marvel. It felt like you were floating through space is basically what it felt like. That's pretty cool. M-S-W-Media.